Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined by Owen Hughes. Hello. The returning Carol Petz. Hello. And Wiki Shuffles, Philip Sharman. Hello. Hello. Uh, for, for those of the listeners of us who haven't listened to a Wiki Shuffle yet, why don't you give them a quick plug, as you're entitled to do? Oh, well, that's the only reason I'm here, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> we at Wikishuffle, wikishuffle.co.uk, you can find us. We, um, every week, press the random article button on Wikishuffle and giggle at the things we find. There's, there's no more complexity to it than that, but it's good fun. Yes, I mean, you've, got, you've won an award and everything. We won um, the UK Podcasters Award for Best Comedy Podcast. Was that the one where you talked about Mexican drug gangs? Because that, that was hilarious. <laughs> we never claimed to be a comedy podcast, but that's the category they decided to put us in. I don't know whether to be um, flattered or embarrassed by that. But no, I, I like it. Thanks. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Praise indeed. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, yeah. Anyway, on to, on to our podcast uh, and on to the quiz where I'm winning 2-1. And if I win... I can make Owen watch a film. Yeah, I mean, you say you can make me, but you, at most you can tell me. You, you can't you. really force me a clockwork orange style. To be honest. <laughs> That's what you think. You don't, you don't know Not with I'm that attitude. Of. don't know what I'm capable of. <laughs> you've, goaded, you've, you've goaded me into it now. Oh dear. So, anyway, obviously with an upcoming triple build day of horror films... The podcast has got a kind of horror theme to it. It's Owen against Carol and Phil. Nearest to the pin style answer to this will win it. It horror franchises. How many films are in said franchise? Only including films that have been released to date, not films that are currently in the pipeline. Understand? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, are we talking entire canon, or do reboots cancel out? Or are we just looking in individual outings? Phil, you're a Wiki- you're a Wikipedia man. It goes with what Wikipedia says. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Them's the rules. Them's the rules. So the first series is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Owen, is the, there's about five of them, I think. Right, and Carol or Phil, do you want to advance on five? I'm See, that's or say... or devance if you think there's less. Yeah, five was going to be my guess, so I'm just going to... Yeah, that six. sounds ballpark. I think six, possibly. I think there's more than four. Owen, you're wrong. Oh, they're wrong. They're wrong as well, but they're nearest, so they win. There's seven. Wow. 
There's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre 2, yeah. Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Next Generation, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2003, the Texas uh-huh. Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, and Texas Chainsaw 3D. Leatherface is in production and will be released in 2016, but that doesn't count in my rules. See, I knew there was the, the, the original, obviously, and the sequel. The sequel's the one that was done by Canon Group, I think, where the post they got into trouble with the poster because they put a big billboard up of Texas Ch- uh, Chainsaw Massacre 2, which was exactly the same as the Breakfast Club um, <laughs> billboard, but with all the characters from the, the family in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all the inbred hillbillies. <laughs> and it was a bit controversial. Um, so I knew there was those two, and I knew there were um, two remakes and a sequel to one of those remakes. So, I, yeah, I just went straight with five. I, I'm surprised there's that many, actually, seven. Uh, next next franchise is Halloween. Oh, God. Oh, there's nine of them, I think. I was going to say 12. I don't think okay. as many as 12. What What is Team Phil um, Carroll's final guess? Oh. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Oh, oh, oh uh, there might be. Oh, I don't know because there's, there's those remakes, weren't there? Well, by Rob Zombie. You've had your guess. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, there were a lot came out in the eighties. They just churned them out, didn't they? They were the the sore of their day. Yeah. Without wanting to preempt the next question. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many sores there are. Um, yeah, with the Rob Zombies, let's go for ten. What, what do you think, Carol? Yeah, I think I think that sounds about. Yeah, that's. I think that sounds fine. You you are spot on. Wow. Ah, bollocks. There, there Is are it best ten. of three There's... or best of three? This quiz. Uh, it, it's 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 best of three. So you've now lost though, and I'm going to do the last one just for the hell of it. But no. <laughs> but uh, so we've got obviously Halloween, Halloween two, Halloween three, Season of the Witch. Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Halloween H2O, 20 Years Later. Halloween Resurrection. And then the two Rob Zombie remakes, Halloween and Halloween 2. Yeah. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, doesn't have Michael Myers in it. Doesn't it? Wow. Nope. Have Nick Cage in it? I'm pretty sure I saw a film of his. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. There we go. So the final one in this quiz is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Ah, right. There's eight of them. Again, there was a modern remake which was absolutely atrocious with what's his name? Yeah, uh, Buster Rhymes. Uh, he plays Rorschach in Watchmen. Yeah, I want to say Haley Joel Osment, but it's not quite that, is it? It's <laughs> it's a name similar to that. Yeah. Jackie <laughs> um, O'Haley. Oh, that's yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> See, so it sounds exactly the same. Um, <laughs> Um, and then there was the crossover as well. I'm guessing that Freddy versus Jason's allowed in there, or is it? I'm not saying. I'm only going what Wikipedia says. Is there Freddy <laughs> okay. versus Jason two as well, or am I completely making that up? I don't think there was. No. So I would say because um, new Ni- new nightmare's got a count, and I think that that was number eight. So I'm going to go ten again. I think. Yeah. It's nine. Oh, so we oh, can yeah, we can call that a draw because Owen's really lost. Um, it is A Nightmare on Elm Street, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Freddy vs. Jason, and A Nightmare on Elm Street in 2010. 
Do you want to hear a bit of Nightmare on Elm Street trivia? Yeah. Yes. That also relates to Ghostbusters because <laughs> everything I do does. Um, the guy who who plays Freddy when he's on fire in the first one is the same guy who plays Mr. Saypuffed. It's the same. Stuff, <laughs> so nice. That, that guy's had a good career. That's, yeah. That's a that's a couple of stone cold hits there. Exactly. <laughs> End of trivia. Mm. There you go. Owen, what are you doing on Saturday afternoon? I don't know yet. Why? Don't make any plans because I've got a film for you to watch. Okay. Is it on TV? Uh, it's on TV. Yeah. It's at quarter past two in the right. afternoon on, on Channel 5. Yeah. Channel 5? That's not a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's Columbo, <laughs> a case of immunity. <laughs> Thank you very much. I knew that was coming. A Columbo movie. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I haven't even written down what the name of the film is. I'll just tune in. Actually, actually I'll give you a choice here. Because <laughs> straight after Columbo, A Case of Immunity, is Columbo, A Deadly State of Mind. Same channel. Which one would you prefer? Just give him both. Yeah, like, <laughs> like or you can do a Columbo. Tell the difference. <laughs> I, won't, I won't make you do a Columbo double header. No, no marathon so, Columbo movies. So I'll record one? both. I'll record both, and then I'll give one of them 15 minutes, and if I don't like it, I'll move on to the next. How will you tell like. the difference, though? Hey, well, like, what, between the two of them? Yeah. You could just probably legitimately, like, fast-forward the second one to 15 minutes in, and it'll be exactly the same. You won't believe this. <laughs> on on 5 USA, at half past five, so when the, when the other one finishes, you've got Columbo, an old-fashioned murder. <laughs> Sounds am- what time is this? I'm cancelling my plans. What time is it on? <laughs> All afternoon on Channel oh, 5. Brilliant. You never know, I might get hooked. Sit- I might watch the first and just get hooked and just spend all day watching them. <laughs> God, dreary <laughs> 70s <laughs> procedurals. I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> Basically, watch one of the Columbo films that are on Saturday. Okay, I will. And you have to watch at least one of them in full. Are you going to watch them as well so we can both talk about it? No. <laughs> I didn't no. lose the quiz. Oh, if you went, if you want to wait till Sunday on 5 USA, you've got a bit of a spicier one. Columbo, Sex and the Married Detective. Oh. Ooh. Might be a bit too saucy for me. And that one's nearly two hours long. The rest are all about an hour and a half. With adverts. With oh. adverts. Is that not just an episode then? But they did half, TV like... movies, didn't they? So, yeah, yeah I guess if it's an hour and a half is a TV movie because of adverts, whereas it normally would be an hour with adverts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Suppose, an American hour, 40, yeah. 42 minutes. Yeah, I suppose so. An American hour. <laughs> That's what we call it here. <laughs> uh, oh, also on Sunday, if you want to wait till Sunday, I'll give you, you can have a really big choice here. At 20 to 5 on 5 USA is Columbo, Publish or Perish. <laughs> You basically, you know, when um, we had uh, Paul on the podcast and he kept mentioning Danny Dyer until we did a podcast about Danny Dyer. <laughs> I hope this is not going the same way with you and Columbo. Let's just, just knock that on the head straight away. I'll read a synopsis for, for publish, or, uh, publish or Perish. A uh, ruthless publisher hires a hitman to kill a best selling author who has threatened to sign with a rival company but reckons about the involvement of the cigar-smoking sleuth who is determined to put the culprit behind bars. 
And I bet that the story going on is eerily similar to a story of one of the books because that's the device they need to use. <laughs> that sounds more like murder she wrote. They're, they again, they're very similar. You would struggle and to mark, find the difference and between. Mark them. my words, Owen. If you lose the next quiz and there happens to be a murder she wrote film, run. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to be just an expert in these things by the end, aren't I? And one more I, thing. Uh, yeah, one more thing. No, no more things. No more Columbo. Let's move on. I can't wait for next week already. I can. Anyway, yes, there, there's some news. Um, they're going to make another Die Hard, aren't they? <sighs> yeah, Die Hard Year One. Uh, um, is that they actually named, titled it? That's what they're going to be calling it. I knew that. It was I believe so. Yeah, being yeah. a prequel. I didn't know that they'd actually give, gone so far as to give it a name. Well, it, it's the working title, at least, so it may change. Um, but it is now in development. Um, it's going to be directed by Len Wiseman, who did the fourth Die Hard film, Live Free or Die Hard, which apparently is the highest grossing in the entire entire franchise. It gets a bad rap, but I didn't mind it. I liked it. I, I defend that film quite a lot, not least because of what was to follow. Yeah, well, the... Well, what, what was the next one called? A good live, day to live, die hard. Live free or die tried. That was the fourth one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's back anyway. Len Wiseman's back, and he's going to direct the prequel. I just—is there any goodwill left for that franchise after the fifth movie? Are they going to like digitally de-age Bruce Willis and give him hair? I hope well, so. <laughs> they just get um, what's his name Joseph Gordon-Levitt back in yeah, to Looper because yeah. he was great in that he <laughs> was um, really convincing actually. they've done the work <laughs> yeah yeah. they kind of get their money uh, first but apparently Bruce Willis is going to be in it as an old John McClane so I guess he just is narrating a story about what happened to him or which, which nobody which nobody mentioned in the first Die Hard yeah, or the second, or third, or fourth, or fifth. Yeah. Is, is a Die Hard prequel just not like a, a New York like precinct cop with a happy marriage? Yeah, is that not the prequel? That there you go, I've done it. You don't even have to go and watch it. As far it's as a I rom-com. know, <laughs> yeah, it's a <laughs> involving a comical misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, because I was always under the impression there wasn't. You know, that was kind of the idea of Die Hard, wasn't it? That he was a pretty unspectacular guy. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, nothing just, really just... had happened to him of note. But yeah. apparently now we need to make a film about it, whatever, whatever unspectacular. Uh, yeah, and so because it's going to have to be an action film, it's going to be pretty spectacular, whatever happens. Yeah. And yet when they were covering him in Yakutomi Plaza in the first one and all the cameras are there digging up stuff on his wife, they don't mention this super cop heroic stuff that we're going to be subjected to now. Exactly. exactly. So the rumours are that it could be a reboot of the series. Uh. Oh no! Then so how, it's an, then, uh, then how an origin story. In it? But anyway, um, anyway, I I had the I've planned out before. I think I've said the what the fifth and now sixth one should have been. It should have been basically White House Down or whatever the other version of that was. They did, and he should have. He's old enough to have a grandkid now. He has a grandkid, and they go on all their little trips to the White House where he's chaperoning her because the parents have to go along and help out, look after him. And then some terrorists attack the White House, and he's there, and he stops them. Die Hard 6. I, I have vague <laughs> recollections of... Vague recollections of Bruce Willis playing a bodyguard for the president in a film. Some film. Was it Last Boy Scout? 
Was that when he became a private detective? Because he... Or was that just a sin? Anyway, uh, yeah. Anyway, basically, whatever whatever idea you had, Steve. But I think any of us could have come up with a better idea than Die Hard 5. Uh, the, the the plan with that was to kickstart the franchise again, but with too, Jay it's, Courtney it's, playing it's his It's too song. big. The, the Die Hard films have diminishing returns depending on how big an area the film is set over. Oh, this is true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the best one is set in a skyscraper. The next best one is set in an airport. The next best one is set in New York. The next best one is set over half of America. And then the next best one is set over Russia and the Ukraine. Are you genuinely telling me that Die Harder is better than Die Hard with a Vengeance? Because that's just incorrect, isn't it? Two better than three. No, nobody thinks that. <laughs> nobody thinks that. I like it. I, I would agree with Steve, actually. I mean, I like two. It's fine. It's a distracting 90s action film, but it's not three. Three's great. But when you, Samuel when you, sh- when you shuffle three. on on your own bloody podcast, when you shuffle on to one of the diehard films, you can make this point as much as you like. I won't stand <laughs> for it here. <laughs> Rank pulled. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Next, next bit of news, and... Uh, King Kong's joining the Godzilla franchise, isn't he? They've announced that Kong Skull Island is set for release in 2017, Godzilla 2 2018, and then they're going to meet him up and let him fight each other in 2020. Yeah. It's a shared universe. Another expanded cinematic, <laughs> cinematic Godzilla cinematic universe. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because Godzilla's franchise was the original cinematic universe, you know, where they... They blended in they, the characters like Mothra and uh, Ghidorah and all that. They weren't originally part of the Godzilla films. And then it became Godzilla versus Mothra or whatever. So it seems like it's come full circle. They've, they've rebooted Godzilla again. Uh, it did okay. Reviews were moderately uh, high praise for, for, for Godzilla. So they've gone, fuck it, we'll just do another... We'll just go back. We'll get all the monsters back together again and they can have a big fight. Don't know. I don't know who I feel about it, though. I know Matt was really excited about it. He's been on our, our podcast quite a lot, but then he's a massive Godzilla fan. Uh, what about you guys? Are you at all interested in, in this sort of Warner Brothers? See, um... I wasn't crazy about the, the latest Godzilla film, but I did like the monster. I thought they did a great job of the monster monsters themselves. Mm. But... They were so massive that to pit that up against a monkey that's an appropriate size capability <laughs> is just there's that's too big a monkey for me to be able to suspend my disbelief. I think. What's the biggest monkey you could suspend your disbelief for? Oh, that's a good question. I think one that can climb the Empire State Building. I'm okay with one that can step over the Empire State Building. That's too big a monkey. Too big a it's monkey. Unwieldy. Yeah, you can't control that. Yeah, and it's not you can't give you can't give it atomic breath, can you? That, that's not what monkeys can do. They can um, throw barrels at him. That's true. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, if he's uh, differently sized, depending on how annoyed he is? Like, uh, like Hulk. I, I accidentally ended up watching Hulk the other night because I couldn't find the remote, and God, it's terrible. But the worst bit is like where he actually wills himself bigger. Like he like <laughs> literally holds his nose and like blows himself up. And if, if King like Kong did Popeye. that, yeah, like <laughs> and, uh, I've forgotten all about that bit. It's such a terrible film. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if King Kong did that, would that be legit? Do you think? I, none of it sounds that legit to me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Just checking. How how big is, is Skull Island got to be to accommodate him? Or just to feed him. Mm. That's going to be some big bananas. Isn't there a joke from one of the Simpsons Halloween specials where they go to Skull Island? Uh, here we're going to Ape Island. Yeah, to capture a giant ape. I wish we were going to Candy Apple Island. Candy Apple Island, what they got there? Apes, but they're not so big. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of my favourite quotes from, from, from The Simpsons. In fact, that whole episode is the best Halloween special they did because some of the Halloween episodes are crap. Yeah. Oh, no, the one with the house, uh, the one where they move into the house and it like, chooses to destroy itself and stuff. I think it's one of the first ones. I really love that yeah. one. Yeah. This one also has the bit where um, Flanders comes up to, to Homer and says, Hey, Simpson, I'm feeling a mite peckish. Mind if I chew your ear? And then Homer shoots him with a shotgun. He goes, Dad, you killed the zombie Flanders. And he goes, He was a zombie? <laughs> was like, Is that the same one where they go a... knocking on his head, like going, Brains, and then like go somewhere else? <laughs> leave, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's another similar quote from a different episode where Lisa gets punished like for, for a lifetime of horror on Monster Island. And he goes, don't worry, it's just a name. And next scene, you just see her being chased by monsters, by with oh, yeah. other people. <laughs> he said it was just a name. It's actually a peninsula. <laughs> yeah. Good old Simpsons. Not like the shit that's on these days. Anyway, yes. Uh, final piece of news is, is London Film Festival has taken place, uh, finished yesterday as, at the time of recording, and Greek comedy Chevalier won the best picture. Yeah, and I haven't seen it. Sorry about yeah. that. Uh, it's, the, it's the first year where we've not had up-to-the-minute coverage, Carol. Yeah, I, I, apologies for that. Didn't go to it. I've got all sorts of real-life things in the way at the moment, and uh, I couldn't justify throwing down hundreds of pounds on the, on film festival tickets, as I normally do. But um, <clears throat> I did get to, to a couple of things. So um, I'm a big fan of shorts, so I went to a couple of the shorts programmes. Film festival is, is divided up by different strands, and the uh, laughter ones were, were pretty good. Probably my favourite one was... Actually, no, my second favourite one was called Just Desserts, which had... Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's staring at me. Uh, the guy, the dad from the Inbetweeners, and he's from the thick of it as well. But I can't remember his name. The yeah. bald guy, and he is just hilarious. And it's about a um, like a dinner party in a restaurant that all goes really badly wrong. trick on him. But uh, probably the highlight of that, to be perfectly honest, although I completely forgot we were getting it in the uh, in the program, was Kung Fury. <laughs> we got we got Kung Fury, uh, kind of halfway through, and uh, I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. In like the whole half an hour, I was just uncontrollably roll like doubling over with. I'm not exaggerating. The person behind, I thought the guy behind me was going to die. He was laughing so hard, like just con just no one, no one. There was no silence in the cinema at any point during that whole half an hour. Someone was laughing somewhere. It, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, you've seen it, haven't you? I yeah, I did. I watched it because it was um. Is it still a, f a free to watch film on it YouTube? It is, yeah, because I because I got into work the next day and said to everyone, "Now oh, you need to watch this on YouTube," and it's still it's still free on there. Because uh, I think it was kickstarted. Um, there was a lot. Yeah. Of, there were a lot of Kickstarter credits at the end, but I think it cost like six hundred and thirty grand or something, which is quite a lot of money for like a, a Kickstarter thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't know whether they're going to keep it free on there like permanently as a because they don't need to make anything back. Basically, they've already had all the money for it. Uh, but yeah, it was just, oh, it was amazing. So the plot as it is, is just uh, essentially like a, a 
Cock goes back in time to kill Adolf Hitler, and that's pretty much it, isn't it? Really? Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's shot in like a purposefully retro bad style. Yeah, it's proper. Uh, it's proper seventies, like old Jackie Chan films and and stuff. It's got it's got so much going on. I could happily just sit and watch it again and and just pick up on all the stuff I missed out on the first time around because I was like wiping tears from my eyes and stuff. And it is it's one of those that works at the length that it is. I think they wanted to make a feature of it as well, but I don't, I, I don't think it would work if the gag was stretched out for like 90 minutes. No. But as that short burst of just non-stop visual jokes and, and other gags, it, it works like that. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a perfectly decent... I, I, seriously, I would have been like... I would have hurt myself if it had been... I came out of my... You know when your stomach just hurts because you've been laughing yeah. so much? That's why I, I felt really bad for the one that came afterwards, which is just like a little sweet five-minute thing, but everyone was just still doubled over. <laughs> but um yeah so they they were probably the highlight uh but then also uh the next day i got to watch i got a last minute ticket to go and watch high rise which i have been waiting for for so long like mm. for about 10 years probably since i think i first read it about 10 years ago and then when it was announced that ben wheatley was directing a film of it, i went and reread it and it's just it's amazing just how um pertinent it is i think it's even more uh, pertinent today than it was probably when it was when it was written in the 60s just kind of the the differences so if you haven't read the book essentially it's about a, a high-rise um, block it's actually a block of a set of five blocks and there's social housing on kind of the bot like social and affordable housing on the bottom rows and then it gradually goes up to the most expensive kind of penthouse where the architect lives and there's a horse in the garden and it's just it's utterly ridiculous i was so pleased with how it came out because i was really it's one of those novels where you kind of think i don't know how they're going to make a film of, of this at all it's so hedonistic and it, it is toned down quite a bit i don't know what rating it's going to get it'll be between 15 and 18 i can't think of anything that will actually get it an 18 rating but it, it's so it is toned down some but it is just a really really enjoyable film i think ben wheatley is really good i've I've not seen all of his stuff i need to go back and and see um some more of it i've seen uh sightseers and kill list i think it was mm-hmm. uh, yeah. i haven't seen a field in england but yeah, I need, I need to go and track it down because it's got Reese Shearsmith in it as well, and I love Reese Shearsmith. I I love A Field in England. I really do. It's one of my favourite modern films. It's just so like every time you watch it again, there's something new in it. There's something that you didn't pick up on last time, and it it is trippy. But that's the point of the film, really. But it's it's so good. I'd recommend that. And also, um, his first film, Dame Terrace, is really good. Uh, I heard him talk about Dane Terrace and he basically said they had to come up with a location based on the amount of money that they had. And then once they realised, OK, we've got enough money to shoot this in my parents' house, then they decided, OK, well, now we need to come up with a story, which is a really... I mean, it does get quite touching at times, but it's basically a, a crime family in the north of England, I think. It's really good. I'd really recommend checking that out as well if you get get a chance. I will. I will have to. Yeah, definitely. Because um, the more the more I see him, the more I like him. And I think he was a great choice for this. It just kind of the way. Basically, what happens in in the book is that society kind of breaks down in in this high rise set of apartments between the the haves and the have nots. Um, mm-hmm. It's all completely self contained. There's like a supermarket there and a, and a swimming pool and everything. So no one ever seen. No one ever needs to go outside, and it kind of just degenerates. And I, I and it was just amazing i thought it was absolutely gorgeous to look at we had a q and a afterwards and he said it was shot in a um in a leisure center in banger in um northern ireland because it was just like from that from that era because it's kind of 
60s there's a lot of 60s architecture going on and it's just yeah even when there's kind of like blood everywhere and stuff it's it's absolutely amazing to look at I don't know when it's coming out um but I really hope it's it's soon because I think it'll be quite polemic I think I think mm-hmm. it will divide people quite a lot to be perfectly honest and yeah really good performances Luke Evans I thought was really good um I can't actually remember seeing him in anything before but his name does ring at least face and name doing a bell so i must have done somewhere and elizabeth moss was really good actually as well i've never really been that impressed with her like in anything else but she was she was pretty good in this i thought and uh sienna miller as well pretty good and tom hilston obviously really good so uh yeah excellent do go and watch it if you if you like the book you'll love it i think uh if you don't like the book you probably won't <laughs> to be perfectly honest Time for us now to have a crack at a couple of new releases. We're going to have a look at Crimson Peak and Beasts of No Nation. First up is Crimson Peak, uh, seen, I believe, by Phil and Carol. Yes, Phil, I've been speaking for quite a long time. Do you know? <laughs> uh, okay, um, I think we've both literally practically just walked out of the cinema, haven't we? Yeah. Independent. Well, you've not, yeah, not you didn't together. go together, did you? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to sound so you know, defensive about that, Carol. He's, Phil's a nice guy. I'm getting married in five weeks. I can't be seen with unusual men in cinemas. Not unusual, you know. Phil's not unusual. Are you unusual, Phil? Fairly unusual. <laughs> um, yeah, so Crimson Peak, then that's what I'm supposed to be talking about. I. Yeah, uh, oh, it's a tricky one. I didn't like it as much as I wanted to, and I really want there to be a um, fantastic Guillermo del Toro film because I feel like we've not we're overdue. Um, I think this isn't it for me. It was very much style over substance, and it was very beautiful style, and I liked looking in its direction. But I found the dialogue in particular very hard to work with. Um, and I found the story a little bit too basic and, and not really giving me enough to play with. What I generally found is that it wasn't Penny Dreadful, which I absolutely adore. The Sky, um, the Sky One series, Penny Dreadful, which is set in a similar sort of world, similar sort of very heavy investment in the in the sets and the, the designs and this kind of feeling of, of macabre and, and otherworldliness. But it just didn't have the script or the dialogue to support it and, and really immerse you in that world. It felt a bit surface. And uh, yeah, I couldn't I didn't get wrapped up in it as a result. Um, the effects were stunning and, and the visuals were genuinely wonderful the, the ghosts in particular and i don't think that's spoiling anything because they're, they're quite prevalent in the trailer in fact they're overplayed in the trailer if anything compared to the content of the actual film but yeah it didn't quite sustain that with characters that i cared enough about the biggest problem i had um was the the suggestion that the um i'm going to mispronounce here mia wasikowska that uh, didn't sound that's quite that's right but that's your one yeah, uh, Mia um, and Tom Hiddleston. We were supposed to believe that they discovered a love beyond the ages, and you just couldn't quite see what either would see in the other enough to to make you invest in that. Um, and that's where it fell down for me. If there was better chemistry there, and the two of them were a, a little more 
engrossed in one another, it would make more sense than it did. That's interesting because from the trailer, I thought they were playing it as that Hiddleston was actually a devious bastard and he was going to trick her into doing whatever his fiendish plot was going to be. The trailer is very confusing compared to the film. It's more a period romp than the trailer would have you believe. Right. Okay. But with elements of ghostiness in the background rather than being front and center, which is definitely not what they've tried to get you to to believe from the trailers mm. which i mean what you've said about the the style over substance though seems to ring true with every review i've read of it actually yeah um, brooker on the website brooker look he wrote the review for us and he he just loved crimson peak but i think as well there's something you can see in his writing he kind of is aware <laughs> the plot doesn't quite live up to to its, its its visuals i mean you might have a completely different opinion carol is that um, or you is that fair or you you on the same page i, I don't know I, I think that it doesn't it's nearly two hours long and it doesn't quite have enough plot to to justify that running time for me uh i think it starts off really well and it's kind of all you know it's a bit ominous and stuff and there, there are a good few jump scares in there which to be honest i didn't really enjoy i don't really enjoy being scared that much on an imax screen <laughs> crying out loud because couldn't actually watch it anything except imax it's not showing anything except imax around me so i had to go and watch it on a huge screen so yeah i i sort of see what phil is saying yeah i i did think that mia wajikowska's character whose name I've totally forgotten. That's, that's, how, that's how memorable it was. She was meant to be your kind of... Uh, she was meant to be kind of the, the little girl in Pan's Labyrinth equivalent here, wasn't she? She was meant to be kind of the wide-eyed innocent. But right. it's it's already been done, Pan's Labyrinth, and it's been done so well that I don't I don't think he's ever going to match up to it, unfortunately. And and that goes for, for everything. As, as Phil said, it looks amazing. It looks really nice, like the house I loved. Just like every, just everything about the house was fantastic. There were so many little details and so many little like you could look in every corner of the screen and see something different. It was fantastic. And the and the yeah the ghosts were really well done. But it's kind of yeah I I think that there was definitely some confusion with how to market it because it didn't seem to be the same sort of film that I was expecting going into it. I mean I I enjoyed it. I'm I'm sounding like I I didn't really enjoy. It. I I did enjoy it. I can't see it, it's not a film that I would see myself like owning or buying or watching, you know, on, on Netflix or anything. You know, it's just kind of yeah, that that's fine. I I don't feel the need to watch it again to to get it to reveal anything else really. No, I don't think there was anything hiding there that it didn't put right out in the open. I would completely agree that the first half hour is the strongest by a long way. Um, the relationship with her and her father I thought was really quite interesting um, and before she actually makes it to Crimson Peak. Um, I found that a more there was more characterization going on there that d- did appeal um, and it, it didn't build on that work to make the characters more in-depth and that's what it needed. I have to. I did think that. Um, oh God, sorry, her name's completely escaped me. The sister, <laughs> Jessica Chastain. Sorry. Yes. Um, I I wasn't sure about her at first because she was kind of, she was being a, you know, she was being a bit flat. But I think that she really, kind of went into the last half an hour just really strongly, and really kind of blossomed because I was sitting there thinking this isn't right. I've never seen her look so like ill at ease basically but uh but she really does come into her own in the last half an hour so like she's probably the highlight of the of the second part of the film really yeah um just going completely mental but uh yeah it's de- decent enough i i would recommend if you've got like a spare couple of hours at the cinema i'd recommend it the problem is at the moment there's just so many other like strong films out 
and I'm not really sure I would say to say to someone, go and see Crimson Peak above all these films, go and see it above the, the Walk, go and see it above the Martian, go and see it above everything else. Well, on, on top of that, it's also out the week before Spectre. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's gonna just get drowned. And it's not done particularly yeah. well in the states either, which it was a shame because I, I really do like Del Toro. I think I think he's really. I think he's one of the few kind of visionary filmmakers around that aren't just kind of whoring themselves out. Well, apart from maybe Hellboy, I don't know. But, um, and Pacific Rim. But, uh, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, apart from that. <laughs> <laughs> apart from all those. Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favourite films ever. And it, it's a shame because he knows how to do, like, proper horror. To me, Pan's Labyrinth is more of a horror film than Crimson Peak is. Oh, God, uh, yeah. It's much more psychologically horrifying in, in every sense of the word. Whereas Crimson Peak does go in for kind of the jump scares and things. And, and yeah, the, the ghost... I mean, it's more of a ghost story than a, than a horror story, really, I think. One, partic- One of those that's like a fantasy story, I guess. Yeah, too. yeah, pretty much. One particular thing I did like, though, there is a particularly gruesome facial injury that's inflicted towards the end of the film, which did make me wince. Uh, Phil? There were there were some elements of <laughs> elements of gore that I felt went a little bit above and beyond the expectation there, but it seems yeah. that that where bodily injuries are concerned, the the all bets are off now. You can just show anything right in the middle of the screen, and that's just fine. Yeah, uh, well, not, that's not a complaint. I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, I, I like a a nice gruesome death scene as much as the next man. Um, <laughs> is it is it a Halloween sort of film then? Is it one to go and see, like? with friends as a sort of spooky film or is it just one you wait to watch on netflix on your own i think it's a bit quiet for a going going with friends one Mm. um i mean it was it was really telling actually i I was in the bfi imax which holds i don't know hundreds of people and there are only about 30 of us there and this was this was true this was like half past five in the evening but I was really, really, it's the emptiest i've ever been in like it's ever been when i when i've been in there it was really um i was really really surprised because i I was kind of expecting it to be pretty full. Um, hmm. But yeah, I think everyone's just waiting for Spectre, really. We'll just kind of, yep, yeah, thanks yeah. very much. But, uh... <laughs> well, it wasn't even showing near me. And if, it's, if, if it shows this weekend in our little cinema worlds that are dotted around, around the area, I'll be very, very surprised because I just think it's, like you said, it's not done very well at the box office. It hasn't had a particularly wide sort of distribution, as far as I can tell. Mm. I mean, I don't seem to be on my own in not finding a local screening. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I just think it'll just. I think it'll just fade. It'll just disappear and be forgotten about, unfortunately. Which is a shame because I really did want to see it. I really wanted to see what Del Toro could do again in the horror genre after drifting away from it slightly yeah. over the past few years. And, and I would never say. And I would never say no. Don't go and see it. It's crap. I, I think it's perfectly. And I think probably yeah. the big screen is the best place to see it, just because of the sheer like the artistry of it is is just mm-hmm. undeniable. It looks fantastic. But yeah, would you see it? As I, um, as I was saying to you earlier, both my local audience are only showing it in IMAX. They're not showing it in 2D or 3D. So you'd have to pay an IMAX premium, and then people are like, "Well, you know, yeah, yeah. Do you want to pay that much money to go and to go and watch it? I'm not really sure. It's not a superhero film. So yeah, uh, yeah it's a, it's a shame because yeah, it definitely does deserve to be seen on a big screen. But um, it just seems to have fallen foul of, of a few things, unfortunately. Mm. Just like whilst I'm looking at the IMDb page, you know, on the right hand side, it always has related news. Yeah. For for uh, for Del Toro, it's got Guillermo Del Toro wants to bring Pet Cemetery back to the big screen. Yeah, you know, I've and never we'll... watched that. I've read the book and I've never watched the film. The film is good. The film's really. Uh, what makes the film is the uh, performance of uh, Judd 
in it. He's I can't remember the actor's name. You know, Dead is better. Him, he's just brilliant. The old guy, Cemetery. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I only um, read Pet Cemetery very recently because I have this thing of not. I don't want to watch films until I've read the book if the book's already available. Wow, <laughs> yeah, that is a commitment. I know. I don't like to. I d- doesn't always happen, but yeah, I don't. I don't mm. like to. But um, yeah, I, I keep because I went to look for it on Netflix and it's been taken off which I was annoyed about. <laughs> okay. So that yeah that's how that's where that's got me. But uh, yeah, I do need to I do need to watch it. Okay. Uh, next film to review then is Beast of No Nation, the first Netflix original movie. They've done a fair bit of uh, their own TV shows now, either continuing shows that have been cancelled or their own original material, but it's their first movie uh, starring mm-hmm. Idris Elba and on the so it's on the subject of, of child soldiers in in some part of war-torn Africa. Oh, and what did you think of that? So, uh, the first thing I thought before sitting down to watch it was Netflix, their original content so far has been a little bit hit and miss for me. Some yeah. things they've done I thought have been great. I've really liked... Uh, I, I'm really pleased they brought Arrested Development back. I know it, the season four had its knockers, but I thought it was... It was funny and well well made. You know, even stuff that I've tried and I still haven't finished, but Sense8, I didn't like that to start with, but I'm kind of getting more into it now. That was a complete, That was a really ambitious project for them to undertake. Uh, and again, now stepping into this sort of um, film world is a very... I mean, it's completely different to making a TV series for a start. And they've not, and they've not picked a nice little rom-com to ease them into it have they exactly you know this isn't this isn't just a 90 minute comedy this isn't a, a, a movie version of wet hot american summer that they've just adapted again or anything like that it's a it's a really like properly serious troubling drama that's unlike any other i mean there's no white people in it for a start um i just think that the fact that it's a, a cast that has no white people in it is quite a a big deal. It shouldn't be a big deal in 2015 that films like this could be made, but it's kind of like a statement that their first movie, the first thing they're going to put out is uh, in Africa. It's not aimed at a, like an American audience or a traditionally white middle class American or British audience. It, it's, it is a proper international film. Aside from the fact they all, they all talk English all the time. Of course, that's the other thing. But um. Yes, yeah, so, okay, so the first thing is, yes, it was a really ambitious project. Did it work? Mostly, I think. I kind of drifted away from it towards the end. I think it, it kind of lost a little bit of focus as it as it went on. But mostly, I thought it was really good, and I thought the performances are good. Obviously, Idris Elba was, was great, um, as we always expect him to be. But the little kid, it's not always you get child actors who who do really well in these sort of roles, these really serious roles, because he starts off as a kind of naive, innocent kid who lives in a little town that's that's controlled by the military or protected by the military. And then the rebels and the military clash, his family die, and he ends up joining the, the, the military, uh, joining the, uh, the rebel soldiers. Uh, and it gets very dark very quickly and yeah. very distressing at times. But the, the kid who plays Agu, the main character, uh, Abraham Atta, he, I thought he was fantastic for this sort of film. I thought he was excellent. But yeah, I mean, overall, I kind of liked most of it. I don't know. Maybe I've just been speaking for so long now that I'm just going to end up going in circles. But am I on my own? Do you guys like it? Or 
got I any criticisms I, of it? I think, really, I'm just going to end up repeating you. It, it was a good film, a, a good watch, good performance, especially from... Not just as unusual to see such good performances from, from child actors, but in such a, a dark and gritty subject manner. Like mm-hmm. you said, it's not like a a comedy where the kid's playing for laughs. It's a, it's a really serious film. Yeah, it is, um, yeah. De- yeah, it's a very I mean, it's, difficult it's, it's, it's topic. Gruesome, it's gruesome in some places. You know, it's uncomfortable in some places. It's, and it's violent and... Mm. But, you know, it's it's done really well. And if Netflix make more films like that, then, then they're on for a winner. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, don't worry, everybody, because the Netflix film coming up, we will be getting lots of Adam Sandler. So if you are worried that this is a bit <laughs> too dense and impenetrable, then Adam Sandler's on his way. Don't worry about that. Um, right. I, I agree. It definitely tailed off towards the end. Um, if the, From the first 10 minutes, I thought I was going to absolutely adore it. I thought the heart that it had got and the, the voice that it got, I thought if it could have sustained that the entire way through, it would have been an incredible feat. Um, but then probably tonally would have been a bit weird as well because obviously the whole point was that it was shifting away from this happy existence. But it was wonderfully refreshing that they didn't need to um, put a white protection Protagonist in the middle of it all uh, that felt great that you know um blood diamonds yeah. um with uh dicaprio, DiCaprio yeah. is the example that always springs to mind of uh, a african story with a a white man just hammered into the middle for no good reason whatsoever um and i'm really glad that it didn't go down that route and it didn't feel that we as a, a western audience need a, a white protagonist to identify with um so that was really good um i thought visually it was striking and it showed me a world that i'm not familiar with and did seem unique uh, in terms mm-hmm. of the way that it was set and the way that it was shot did it teach me anything I'm not sure whether it did particularly because it's not as if I'm ignorant to the idea that these things happen. What I did like about it is that the respect that it had for what the action of killing a human being is. Um, A lot of these types of films will inevitably have to pile on the bloodshed and that can lead to a kind of desensitization and a need to ramp that up more as time goes on and i like the fact that they didn't feel the need to do that um if anything the the most harrowing bloodshed moments were quite relatively early on in the film so it wasn't it wasn't chasing after that if you want it didn't end in a, in a massive battle there wasn't a, that wasn't the denouement the point was the the story of this young lad and i felt that it kept him very much in the sights and I liked the fact that there wasn't a clear-cut morality tale that it was all at the end just pinned on one person. It was their fault. Well, it kind of... I just to into it, I think it kind of didn't really... With Idris Elba, his character, the, the moral point that, you, that you, you mentioned, the relationship between his character and Agu... I, there, there were mo- there's a moment in the film where I thought... I understand what they're trying to do to that relationship. They're trying to show it's not as... Uh, how do I pull it without spoiling what happens in the film? Do you know which bit I'm referring to? In the... Where it's just Agu and yes. Elba alone. Yep. Okay. That bit is there to show that their relationship is not quite as it seems because at that all all you've had up to that point is agu idolizing idris elba's guy idris elba's character as this charismatic leader of the rebellion who's a bit cold 
kills people. Obviously, he's taking on children as soldiers, but he's like, he's got a a, a sort of um, he's got his own morals, his own ethics, and he he's fighting for something. That was it. That's what I I meant by when I said that it was very respectful of the the act of violence and murder. It was a, yeah. a, acknowledging that that so often we're just presented henchmen in these things that just kill because somebody's pointed and say shoot in that direction, and that always seems disingenuous and and not real. But then it tries to show that he's actually the bad guy, which I thought was was a shame. I didn't like that bit so much. I thought it felt a bit cheap. But that might just be me. I, do, I don't know. I just thought that was the, the, the a point in the film that I thought was not handled so well. It felt a bit rushed to try and get the message across about, sure. about uh, Idris Elba's um, soldier, that he's the, com- the commandant or whatever he was called. Um, yeah, I don't know. It might have just been me, though, I guess. But I'm certainly very pleased that um, Netflix are choosing to make this kind of film. Um, it's certainly bodes well for the future. Yeah, as we get uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon 2 to come out soon, which was meant to be their first film. And that was what originally they were going to release uh, this just Friday gone. And is Adam Sandler going to be in that one? <laughs> no, Michelle Yeoh and... Um... Donnie Yen, I think, are going to be in it. Okay. Which is pretty, like, heavyweight character yeah. actors to get for a film like that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is... That will probably be quite fun. This was not fun. Um, it, it's directed as well by... Uh, I'm really going to struggle to pronounce his name. In fact, Phil, you've got experience of this now. You're really getting quite good on Wicked Shuffle at pronouncing foreign... How would you pronounce the director's name? Carrie uh, Joji Fukunaga. Oh, flawless. Confidence, that's all you need, confidence. (laughs) Say it with uh, authority. Based on the novel by Uzadinma Iwala. Iwala. Uh, That wasn't quite as good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Basically, um, Fukunaga's uh, other, probably most well-known credit is True Detective. Yes, and you could see bits of that in there, definitely. Um, the the trench scenes in particular seem yep. to be very reminiscent, um, and uh, yeah, the the camera following the action the way that it did seemed reminiscent of the best pieces of um, True Detective, um, which is well, yeah, the bit where Aggie's escaping at the beginning that you mentioned, where there's quite bloody yep. moments, felt very much like True Detective. Yeah, to me. yeah, the, the the best parts of, of True Detective, which um, I found unfortunately didn't build on the the start and the second season I've never even bothered with. Yeah, exactly the same, yeah. In the final part of this week's podcast, we have brought back Triple Bill, with it being Halloween at the weekend. Uh, No, not this week. Yes, it is this weekend. Not not yet. No. Soon. Halloween soon. (laughs) Yeah, basically, basically, when it's Halloween is when our Spectre podcast comes out. So we've bumped Halloween ahead a couple of weeks. Yeah. James Bond, officially bigger than the biggest pagan festival. Yeah. Yeah. So we are (laughs) picking our three favourite horror films, but the the, uh, criteria is that they're all from different decades. We can't pick three films from the same decade. Uh, Owen? Why don't you begin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, that 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 is what we're doing. So you can't have three films from from the same 
decade. But because I already did something similar last October in written articles on the website called The Decade in Horror, where we, me and uh, Liam, Paul, Mike and Brooke all picked up our favourite film from each decade, our favourite horror film from each decade. I thought what I'd do this time, just for something that's slightly different, is I'd pick my favourite film from different decades that I've watched for the first time this year. So films I hadn't seen before before 2015. So, to start off with, I'm pretty sure nobody else will have chosen this. I said before we started recording, I will bet my car that none of you have chosen this film. Which is risky because I'm saying it before any of you have had a chance to say what your film is. But, yeah, my first choice is from 1963. That so mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, Before we go on, is it a car that anybody would want? What what is it? What what car is on the table here? It's no, it's a tiny little, you know, micro machines, one of them. Oh, That's right. what I'm betting. <laughs> <laughs> Save myself. Yeah, because basically I don't think it would be right for me to go through a triple bill like this and not mention a film starring Vincent Price. Oh no, it's not That's fair. It. It's not the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh and yeah, b- believe it or not, there were were a few Vincent Price films that I'd not seen until this year. There was The Oblong Box, The Haunted Palace, Tales of Terror. But actually, the one that I want to discuss is The Raven. Now, you know, there are a number of Roger Corman and Vincent Price adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe's works. If I had to put money on it, I'd probably say The Raven is Edgar Allan Poe's most well-known poem. And why would that be, Steve? Why would people know The Raven? Uh, It's been in The Simpsons. It's been in The Simpsons, yeah. The Simpsons did it. The Simpsons did it. And they did it very well, I think. I think one, they did one it of really the well. Best art, definitely. It's incredible, isn't it? But yeah, so, you know, all of the Roger Corman adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, poems and works, they are at best loose adaptations. The Raven is no different, but it's got a brilliant cast. Uh, it's just got some genuinely hilarious writing in it as well. But the, the plot is. I don't know. It's just bonkers. It kind of revolves around this guy called Dr. Craven. Right? Craven, Raven, sounds quite similar. Who is a like meek, retired sorcerer, played by Vincent Price, who's visited by a talking raven as uh, Dr. Craven is sat there mourning the loss of uh, his missus, Lenore. So far, so similar to the, the Poe uh, poem. Then things get a bit weird because the Raven is played by uh, Peter Law, who is just absolutely fantastic anyway in, in everything, who he himself was a magician, but had been transformed into a Raven by another sorcerer called Dr. Scarabus, played by Boris Karloff. So Peter Law then gets Dr. Craven to turn him back into a human. But there's a twist, another twist. Peter Law tells Vincent Price that his uh, that Dr. Scarabus, who is a sort of family rival, is actually shacked up with Lenore, who faked her own death. So it's nothing at all like the poem. I mean, it just completely veers off within the first five minutes. So then, you know, you've got Jack Nicholson who crops up in it, playing a typically mad young guy who um, is the son of the Raven, played by Peter Law. They go to Dr. Scarabus's castle and then they have a fight. Dr. Scarabus and Vincent Price have a, a fight where neither of them gets out of their chair. They're sat down in this fight for the whole time, throwing magic at each other. So, like, if you imagine really bad 1960s shit special effects, you're, you know, imagine, like, a superimposed lightning bolt that flashes across the screen when Vincent Price points his finger 
or um, Vincent Price starts floating around the room on his chair, and then the magic bolts that he throws at Boris Karloff turn into eggs and just hit Boris Karloff in the face. Or he falls through the floor, so you only see the top half of him, which is visible. I mean, it's one step away from them sort of throwing custard pies at each other. It's, it's weird because the poster calls it a macabre masterpiece of terror. <laughs> which is just like an absolute joke because there is nothing in this film terrifying at all. Not even slightly. Um, but but in a slightly silly, well, very silly uh, and lighthearted kind of way, it's really entertaining. I really liked it. I, I kind of laughed all the way through it, sometimes intentionally, sometimes because it was, you know, it was just so bad that you couldn't do anything but laugh. Uh, but it, it is partly... Parts of it are just so funny, so funny. And the performances are what, what make it. Peter Law in particular just steals the show. And that's not often someone does that when Vincent Price is on the screen at the same time, you know. And Boris Karloff as well. So it's, you know, stiff competition. But he he's great. It's not the greatest Corman Price Poe film. Uh, I did watch Mask of the Red Death again this past week, which is just a phenomenal... And talking about Crimson Peak, incredibly stylish and atmospheric horror movie. Uh, but The Raven was still fun and camp and... I just, I just loved it. So that was my, that was my first pick from, okay. from nineteen sixty-three. Carol. Well, I've gone for a film from nineteen sixty-three, and it's also sort of av avine related, but it's uh, the birds instead. Uh, oh. so, so when you said that, I was like, oh, I'm getting that car. Oh, <laughs> Raven. Oh, okay. Oh, but you know, quite similar. Yeah. Why? Well, I can't believe you didn't go for the birds. Surely, Psycho. If you're going to 60s Hitchcock, I, horror. I actually prefer the birds. Like I, I don't even. I, this was like the first legitimate horror film I think I ever actually watched, because everyone was like, "Oh, you know, it's in black and white. How bad can it be?" You know, we just <laughs> let, like let her watch it on about ten years old or something. I, I find the birds much more horrifying than Psycho. It's, I've never thought of Psycho as a horror film. It's a thriller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of bigged up as well, bigged up. What kind of language is that? <laughs> it's quite, you know, uh, uh, referred to as the the breakthrough for horror films. Yeah, really. but I don't I don't understand that. There's no, it's a it's a thriller, chiller at best. But um, I wouldn't call it horror. Whereas the Are birds, you... yeah, there's something, yeah. there's something horrific going on there. Well, it's just it's just the fact that that Psycho all takes place, you know, within the hotel. You know, you could you could escape the hotel and it'd probably be fine until the sequel. Mm. Um, but like the birds is is you know that's what happens when you're actually trying to escape from your house. It's that bit where they're all kind of like sitting in the trees waiting for you and stuff. And it's just like, oh my god, this is this is absolutely terrifying. And it's pretty gruesome as well. There's this bit mm. I remember that like vividly there's this bit where they find the neighbor and his eyes have been pecked out and stuff like that and it's pretty it's pretty horrifying for kind of 1960s standards you are all um, about the face wounds aren't you carol yeah i eyes <laughs> freak me out that's probably that might have even been where i got it was uh like, like my lifelong hatred of things being done to eyes but yeah i think i think it's absolutely incredible I, i'm much it's probably my favorite Hitchcock film I just really like it there's, there's, a, there's a fantastic sense of dread just just from these kind of you know harmless uh, birds uh, which I, I found just really really effective and yeah it, it does freak me out when I go somewhere and there's loads of birds perched on a tree and, and this, this film is entirely why why that happens um, yes on to the 80s now um, where a few of us have a choice nothing good happened in the 70s by the looks of it so we're going straight to the 80s <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. 
definitely nothing good in the world of horror happened in the 70s. I just meant nothing in general. The Exorcist? Did they just two? No. Boring. Yeah. Been there, done that. 70s horror classics. I don't understand any of them. (laughs) Genuinely don't. Don't Look Now is possibly my least (laughs) favourite. The biggest waste of my time I have ever spent in front of a TV screen is Don't Look Now. I hated that film so much. But... (laughs) Uh, but I'm so I'm glad that nobody's chosen that that family. Right. Anyway, uh, 80s horror, and we are going for my choice, which is The Thing. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, which is also known as starting Kurt Russell. I think it's very, very atmospheric. These people stuck in the Antarctic, nowhere to kind of run from this monster that's picking them off one by one, and obviously because it shapeshifts and you don't know who it is. It's just very, very claustrophobic, very, you know, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, remade reasonably, well, no, I didn't like the remake <laughs> that much. I was trying to remember it, but no, I, I just think it's a great, creepy, atmospheric horror film. Yeah, I mean, the first time I watched The Thing, I felt like it was an action film. And then... Um... With with a bit of a gory moment in the middle, but when you watch it again, it's a proper paranoid science yeah. fiction horror. Yeah, it, it is all about the, the the horror of the situation they're in and not knowing whether and, and not someone is able, who they say they are and and not being yeah. able to escape and mm. being you know dark and cold and and yeah. Kurt Russell's great great beard. Kurt Russell's just great. Full stop. Isn't he? We we deserve more modern day Kurt Russell. What's he up to these days? Well, just just it, isn't it? Yeah, what is he doing? I mean, uh, the last thing I can remember watching him in, I think, was um, Death Proof. That was years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. He owes us nothing. (laughs) He's he's earned his retirement. Yeah. He was in, um, though, he was in, what was he in? Briefly. Um, Uh, Fast and Furious 7, he was in. That was it, yeah. Yeah. And he's going to be in The Hateful Eight. So that's something to look forward to. Yep. Yeah, I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah. I do like Tarantino. Uh, Owen, back to you. Uh, yes, back to me. Um, <laughs> so my film from the 80s uh, is a film I watched this week, actually. David Cronenberg's Videodrome. So the basic premise is... Um, I don't actually think there's anything that's basic about Videodrome. The plot is kind of along the lines of... Um, there's a president of a controversial Canadian TV network, right? He finds this pirate station that are showing something called Videodrome. Uh, it doesn't have plot. It doesn't have characters. It's basically a pornographic snuff film. But this president, who's played by James Woods, he doesn't believe it's a real snuff film. He thinks it's fake. And what he really wants to do is acquire it for his edgy TV channel. So then he tries to track down where the show originated and it just leads him on this spiral of hallucinations and just conspiracies and, and, and murder and all these kinds of different things and lots of lots and lots of uh, sexual Cronenberg-esque body horror. It's probably the most like intrinsically complex conspiracy mystery thriller that I can think of. Uh, or at least, it, I mean, it's... It's not, it isn't just body horror. I know I just said it, it has body horror. It's not just that. And that's usually kind of what people think of, I guess, when, when they think of Cronenberg horror films. But if you look at the, the, the Wikipedia page, it describes Videodrome as a 
1983 Canadian neo-noir postmodernist science fiction body horror slash psychological horror film. That is a genre of its own. <laughs> there can't be many others that fit that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's hardly a straightforward uh, anything. It's not straightforward anything. As much as I enjoy Videodrome, I think my biggest mistake was uh, when I watched it, was where I actually watched it. I, I basically had a lecture at university that finished at about 1pm, but I had to stay on campus until about 6pm, which meant I just had a big gap in the middle of the day. So I just wandered over to the library. I thought I'd get a book or, you know, let's just hang around a bit. And I looked and they have like DVDs that you can rent. And that's when I saw Videodrome. I was like, oh, I'm meant to watch that. And just without sort of thinking, I said, have you got like a, a TV around here that people can watch these films on? And they said, oh, yeah, it's just over there by the computers. Oh, brilliant. I'll just go and watch this for a bit without thinking about it. And then it suddenly it was like, hmm, Sexually explicit violence in a David Cronenberg in a public place. In a library, no less. In a library as well. <laughs> yeah, I managed to I managed to last about fifteen minutes before I thought I better stop before someone <laughs> complains. Um, and I took it over and I watched it at home. But yeah, that that was my biggest mistake. Otherwise, it's just a, a great movie. I really recommend it. It's not long either. It's only about eighty-five minutes or something like that. But it's got so much crammed into it. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely recommend people watch it. Just, just maybe not in a library. Okay, uh, Carol, your film from the eighties. Um, I nearly went with The Fly, actually. Oh wow. been, Yeah, which would have been a bit too close to yours, I think. Um, I think the eighties is a, a, quite a good decade for mm. horror, personally. Um, so there were a few I could have picked from from this um, decade. Uh, I could have picked Evil Dead 2, but I think I picked that last time. So I decided to go another way this time <laughs> and go uh, with American Werewolf in London, which is just, oh. Oh, I love this film so much. I only watched it for the first time a few years ago, a, a screening uh, with uh, Edgar Wright at BFI. Um, so he was telling us about when he it was about six or seven and he watched this film for the first time uh which must have been just truly horrifying because there are some genuinely awful bits in it but it's it's in that i'm much more of a fan of comedy horror like funny horror than straight horror um straight horror doesn't really do a lot an awful lot for me but uh comedy horror where, where something's funny un, unintentionally or otherwise is always kind of well pretty much guaranteed to to get me on side and american werewolf in london is pretty funny i'm not sure it's meant to be but there are definitely some bits which are just so outrageous that they're hilarious um so essentially the if you haven't seen it the story is as two uh, american backpacker students who are in uh, the yorkshire moors and one of them get they both get attacked um you don't know what by one of them gets killed and the other one goes to hospital and uh the one who who dies actually turns up and tells the other one that they've been attacked by a werewolf and he's going to turn into a werewolf at the next full moon, uh, which he does, which is just one of the most unbelievable effects, considering this is 1981, mm. I think, this film. Um, just some of the most unbelievable special effects I've ever seen. I remember seeing The Howling when I was about 16 and I thought the effects in that were good, but this just completely blows it out of the water. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's got re some really, really funny bits in it. The bit in the tube... Uh, tube station is genuinely scary um and it's just really really fantastic film and, and a good comedy horror apart from the bit with the nazi werewolves that is fucking messed up oh that is <laughs> nightmarish yeah and a brief appearance from rick mail in the pub oh yeah i i totally forgot about him actually yeah i, I saw rick mail in um i in the sequel to rocky horror show 
shock treatment. He's like a leading actor in that. I had no really? idea. I think he kind of tried to expunge it from his CV. Which, yeah. yeah, it's a perfectly decent film. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. But yeah, he he was definitely definitely had bigger parts than this. Yeah, he was in, in it for like 10 seconds, I think. Yeah. On to the 90s, and we're going to hear from Phil for the first time in Triple Bill. Okay. Um, so the first film I'm going to talk about is one that I can't talk about because... I can't remember anything about it. <laughs> when when tasked with coming up with horror films, I thought, right, I need to think of something that's been particularly um, momentous memory-wise for me. And the, the film that I remember shredding my nerves more than any other film I've ever watched has, um, that I watched once when it was released in 1997. So I'd have been 16 when I went to see this at the cinema, and I probably shouldn't have done. Um, I think I went with some friends and thinking, yeah, I'll be fine. And I just got absolutely, it ruined me, absolutely broke me to the point that I can't actually remember any detail about the film. And even today have never dared to go back again and give it another try. And that is Event Horizon. Oh, I love that film. Um, I love it. And I, I genuinely cannot tell you whether it's any good. I do not have a fully formed enough memory or opinion of the film. What I know is that I've never gripped onto a um, cinema uh, hand rest, armrest as tightly, <laughs> and I've never felt as much adrenaline in a film um, before or since seeing that. And generally, I, I don't think I scare particularly easily either. I can't remember many instances where I've been properly creeped out to cinema, but it just got me. There was something about it that struck a nerve. Um, so I remember that it was on a spaceship. I remember that Lawrence Fishburne was there. That's about it. <laughs> Beyond that, I can't say much more. And one day, I'll, I'll bring up the nerve to give it another go. But not yet. <laughs> you really should. Honestly, it really holds up well. It's like Hellraiser in space, basically. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, on to my second choice, and that is from 1996, and that is Scream. It was on the other night. It was, yeah. Yeah, um, I sat and watched I it again. Catch it, but <laughs> I, just, I just think it's, it's great. It's, it's, I think it's what kind of ones, going back to the thing, and, and the one I'm going to pick finally. So ones that make you feel kind of, claustrophobic and, and on edge and the more than like jump out scares where like something makes you jump but then it's kind of forgotten about quite quickly it's, I prefer ones where I just made the feel creepy and once the film's finished I'm just like you know sat there in the dark on your own letting bed in the dark and you're annoyed you go oh fucking hell what have I watched that for <laughs> and then you, have to, then, you have, then you have to get back up and like watch some like put on a comedy for half an hour like what put an episode of uh simpsons or south park on to kind of take your mind off of the immense horror that's not creeping around the corner <laughs> <laughs> or the psychopath that's not lurking in the next room or watching you through your window or asking you what your favorite scary movie is it's scream is so 90s as well isn't it it's very 90s oh yeah it, that super cool knowing uh kind of ironic in, in an American ironic sort of sort of way that it, yeah it's very clever though it's still very clever so it's yeah. um, what Wes Craven tried to do with uh, New Nightmare but did it slightly more accomplished in in Scream that meta humour yeah the I world the world was ready for that kind of nasal gazing navel gazing yeah. at that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's probably doing more with the script though, wasn't it? I I don't actually know what Kevin Williamson is up to these days. I I cannot remember anything that he's done past Scream Two. But you're a big fan of Scream Two, aren't you? I love Scream Two. I actually mm. I actually think I prefer Scream Two to the first one. But I think that's because the 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 shock of the first one had passed me by because it had already been out for so long since like before I saw it. I think I was only fourteen when it came out. So like everyone knew basically what happened, you know the the big thing. At the, is it, this film is nearly twenty years old. No, I wouldn't worry. <laughs> so the big thing. So everyone's expecting Drew Barrymore to be like a, a massive star of the of the uh, yeah, film, and then she just goes within five minutes, and she's strung up and her guts are swelling out. So you know I knew about that before I even watched it. Whereas the second one I didn't really know a lot about it, and I just thought it was I just thought it was really cleverly done, especially if it as it follows the rules of the sequel as well the body counts bigger and <laughs> death scenes are more elaborate the, the bit with the guy with the policeman with his face in the windshield still freaks me out yeah and carol yourself your your final one of your triple bill yeah so my final one is just like one of the worst i was one of the worst films i've ever seen just one of the most disturbing films i've ever seen 1998 original version of ring uh the mm. japanese version which I have seen the American version and it, it's all right, but it's it's nothing it's nothing on the Japanese one at all. Essentially, the plot is that people watch a strange video and then seven days later they die uh, by kind of unknown by unseen forces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it's just it's such an unsettling film, especially uh, if you if you've ever watched it. The bit at the end uh, with the tele- with the television. Uh, it's just absolutely horrible, and yeah, it's just, it's one of the most disturbing films I've ever watched. Easily, just there are there are bits of it that will just stick with me forever. I think, and the book's pretty good as well, actually. And the American one's okay, but it's not not as creepy. I don't think. No, no. I think I saw the American one first. Um, as happens when you're younger, you don't really yeah. get access. You know, before. The internet's really as widespread. You can't see out harder to see like the Japanese version and the original and things like that. But uh, no, yeah, definitely the, the original better than the the remake. Um, Phil, your second choice from the uh, I think we decided we call this decade the noughties. From the noughties, yeah, I don't like. That. I'm not happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've chosen a 2007 film. Um, which is uh, a little bit littler than the most of the other ones that we've talked about so far. And it's a film called The Signal, um, which I absolutely love. Uh, very small budget, um, little little horror film. And it's filmed in three sections, each with a separate director. So it kind of predated the the fad for the horror um, ensemble pieces where there's the um, all of the, the episodic... Um, mm-hmm. Sort of ABCs of death and and all of those that have, and VHSs that have come along earlier, but it's a, a similar sort of concept where there's three directors all telling the same story, um, but they're given like a segment each effectively. This film suffered from absolutely horrific marketing. Um, the DVD cover makes it look like a god awful straight to video zombie film, which it really isn't. So even though it's only playing with a very small um, budget, it is an absolutely fantastic film, and I watched it again specifically for this podcast so that I could talk about it with it fresh in my mind. Um, the premise is quite simple, but uh, but given how simple it is, I've never seen anything else do it. Um, the idea is this: the sig, the titular signal um, is a, a signal 
signal that's broadcast for unknown reasons on all TV stations and on all mobile phones. And so everybody's exposed to it and it sends the entire population psychopathic effectively. Um, but nobody thinks that they themselves are being affected by it. So everybody thinks that everybody's gone mad except me <laughs> and that there is so much to work with there because you've got everyone going crazy, but thinking that they're acting rationally. And that is such a powerful dynamic that it feels a really fresh take on the, the sort of psychopathic axe murdering thing because everyone's at it, but everyone's trying to justify why they're doing it and why how they're just protecting people and stopping the other people that have gone crazy. And that works incredibly effectively. The three segments of the three, my favourite is the third. And Carol already talked about how she likes there to be some humour injected into a, a good horror film. And I think it's incredibly hard to, to pull off. But the second segment is effectively the, the best example of a dark comedy um, that I can possibly think of. It is laugh out loud funny in the position that these um, three people all being affected by the same disease, disease or exposure, um, all going quietly mental without actually acknowledging it and in a very confined space. It's absolutely hilarious, but doesn't diminish the drama and the, the, the rest of the ongoing storyline that runs throughout the whole thing. I honestly can't recommend it highly enough. Try and ignore the front cover because it does look as though it's going to be absolute toss from that. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's and it holds up. So I was worried as well because I hadn't seen it for a few years before I watched it this week. I was worried that it might not hold up, but it does fantastically. And I, if anything, I enjoyed it even more watching it again. So that's 2007's The Signal. Um, and it also stars, um, I've forgotten his name. Um, oh, it's entirely gone. Sorry. It's, uh, but he turns up again in, um, oh, no. My... AJ Bowen. Is that him? In From the Sacrament and You're Next? That's right. Yeah. Turns up again in You're Next, which is, yeah. which I very nearly chose um, as uh, for this selection as well. But okay. didn't. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm rounding mine. <laughs> My triple bill off in the naughty, and that's with the first in the Paranormal Activity series. Really gave found footage films a, a shot in the arm. Wouldn't have said it was much needed, but it, it certainly spawned a lot of absolute gubbins to come after it in that in that category. But I just thought it was it was brilliant. It was it was kind of innovative with the found footage. Um, you know, no big names. It's 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 takes a long time for anything to happen it builds up slowly just little things turning bigger and bigger and it that it is definitely one of the ones where it is yeah i don't really want to sleep with the lights off because something going on here <laughs> it is it is creepy as you like and it, it has a long has a lasting effect on you after you've seen it for a, for for the following night i don't really i mean the, the except for the last sequel i know there's a new one coming out in a week or so but the uh, the last sequel didn't go much on, but the other ones were, were good as well. But this one was just yeah, the f a first uh, a good horror film that I hadn't seen. You know, hadn't been many good horror films out for a while around that one, and then that one came out and was just creepy and everything you wanted from that kind of film. But it was so different, wasn't it, to all the the slashers that were around at that time? Yeah, two thousand two thousand seven something like 2009, that. Two thousand nine, I think. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's weird to think that between Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity, that had that found footage thing hadn't really taken off like it has since. 
since yeah. Batman Oh, yeah, they were happier thought... times, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see what I've chosen for my my final one. What have right, you so... chosen, Owen? Uh, yeah. Okay, I will <laughs> go straight into it. I have picked a film um, that was released this year. I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast before. I definitely wrote about it on the website, but it's called Creep. Uh, it's a very low budget. It's more mockumentary than fame footage. It's a mockumentary style. I'm sure, I film. think you have spoken about it. I'm sure I remember it being spoken about by someone at least. Mm, I think, yeah, maybe I have mentioned it. But um, basically it's directed by, uh, written by and starring Patrick uh, Bruce as a videographer who responds to an advert from a dying man looking for sort of someone to just come and film him for a day in his woodland cabin and just capture some private moments in a video diary so that he can leave it for his as-yet-unborn daughter. And then this guy kind of, through the course of the film, you work out he's, he's not quite telling the truth. And is he really dying is does he really have a daughter is this really his cabin and it just kind of escalates more and more as the whole thing goes on but you're stuck there because you're watching the whole thing through this camera through the lens that's pointed at him all the time you're kind of feeling the tension of like fuck what would you do what would you do in this situation how would you get around it and then yeah it just you know it's revealed that his um uh I'm not saying specific, but you know, he's a well, he's a creep, I guess, since the title. And so, you have to sort of say, you know, well, come the end of the year, I'll tell you what, when when we come to do our end of year votes, our favorite performances of 2015, Mark Duplass will be in my final shortlist for his part in this film as the guy who's being videoed because he is fucking terrifying in this. It's by far his best performance that I've seen. I mean, his mere presence on screen just unnerves you completely. And you, you squirm. You don't really know what, what you would do to deal with him at certain places. He's so socially awkward. And oh, it's just so, such a, a brilliant, unsettling performance. There's one scene in particular that's sort of around the middle of the movie that's just fucking... It just makes me shudder to think about it. Because it's because Mark Duplass is that good in it. And in the moment, and it's just it's just fantastic. But yeah, I mean, I I loved Creep overall. Anyway, it's a properly good example of how to do found footage, even though it's not strictly found. It's it's that mockumentary thing. But it's what I mean is like that point of view camera. How to make use of it properly yeah. to to sort of scare the audience, not to to, to, to sort of make that the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up yeah. as you're watching. It's great. It's a, I highly recommend it if people haven't haven't heard of it. It's I think it's on Netflix as well, actually. I think it's a shame that found footage sort of video camera footage things is so cheap to make because it ends up being a a default for people that haven't got much budget and yeah. that undermines the potential that it's got um, when it's done effectively and done well mm. um, because it, you do feel as though you, you you can feel as though you're watching something real. Um, certainly the the most effective um, example I can think of is a segment in one of the VHS films um, where there's a guy with a camera on his glasses and it's done fantastically well, but there's 50 or 60 instances where it's turgid. Yeah, that that is the problem. I mean, it's unfair on the people who put a lot of creativity and thought into doing it right. Yeah. I mean, I watched one recently called The Pyramid. Did you review this, Steve? The Pyramid with uh, 
uh, what's his name? Was it Je- uh, Will Buckley or something like that? No, it wasn't, us, wasn't me, no. Uh, James yeah. Buckley, I think Will Buckley is an average Premier League Championship midfielder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easy to confuse the two. Yeah. Um, he um, That film cannot decide what it wants to do with fame footage because sometimes it's using fame footage and then other times you've got like two or three different camera angles going on yeah. that just aren't using the fame. So they abandon it, they realise it's not working, but then because they've already started, they persevere with it. It's just... That is a shame because then you get other projects like The Bay, which do it really well. They they really take on board the whole you have to use fame footage. It's what people have captured. Yeah, that is the, the essential premise to it. So yeah, the, the, you get films that really and I think the ones that do it badly are the ones that end up ruining the reputation more, or doing more damage to the reputation of fame oh, footage God, than yeah. the good ones do. What was that one last year underneath Paris? As above, so below, something like that. Oh, it was awful. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a shame, really, because I think if if done well, it's one of my favourite techniques for horror films. But it just seems to be not often enough that it's done well. And Phil, why don't you end off Triple Bill with your final film? Okay, because I couldn't not, um, because it's possibly the best film ever made, and that's The Cabin in the Woods. Um, <laughs> It's we had Scream along earlier. I'm not a fan of Scream. I feel like the the introspection and the things it's got to say about the genre of horror overall, it's just all worn a bit too much on its sleeve. Whereas Cabin in the Woods doesn't tell you about it. It shows you all of those tropes at play and how to subvert them um, and how to mess with them. And and it's been talked to death. And uh, if anybody doesn't love Cabin in the Woods, then. I'll fight you. Cabin in the Woods <laughs> was my backup. <laughs> I knew someone was going to have it. <laughs> I couldn't not. I, I thought I thought around it and I thought, no, it would be a disservice to the genre of horror films to not put Cabin in the Woods in there. And if by any chance there are any listeners of Fell Credit crit- Critics who haven't seen it, then you know, you're not really welcome here to start with. <laughs> but go out and watch it straight away because there is so much, it is just a, a masterclass in everything you want from a horror film in terms of ramping things up, things getting bigger, the explanations as to why you're there, humor being used effectively. And as a counterpoint to the, the action and the, the, the horror that's unfolding, never quite knowing where it's going to end up and then taking you in other directions that you weren't expecting um, with characters that you do actually care about and that you don't want to see killed. It just gets everything absolutely on the money um, and I adore it from start to finish lovely uh, that's all for that triple bill then um, only one thing left to do and that's recommendations for the week ahead I'm going to go ICV 2 and on Wednesday yeah, I think it happens to be the same day that in Back to the Future 2 they went to the, the future uh, 2015 and ICV 2 are showing all Back to the Future's back to back and something with Keith Lemon which to be honest yeah you can forget about that though yeah, <laughs> that would be that would be tedious and about as funny as a kick in the bollocks. Yeah, if you're the one receiving kicking ball, I'll laugh at anyone else that kicks in the bollocks. But that was the <laughs> uh Phil, um, season six of Archer has turned up on Netflix. There's not a better way of spending four hours of your life. Um, there you go. Is it as good as the other series? Because I've heard mixed things about season six. I burnt through them all in an afternoon, so that tells you that there must be right, something okay. good going on there. I certainly didn't yeah. want it to end, and it finished far too quickly for me. But yeah, I still thought there was great stuff in there. Uh, Owen? 
Um, I'm sticking with the horror theme and picking a film that's on Tuesday on the Horror Channel at ten past eleven. It's uh, Zombie Flesh Eaters, or Zombie Two, or Zombie Dead Among Us, or whatever you want to call it. It's known by about a million different titles. But yeah, Zombie Flesh Eaters, I think, is its UK UK film. Don't be put off by the dubbing. It is dubbed because it's Italian with English dubbing. Don't be put off by it. Stick with it. It's a fantastic zombie movie. We didn't have a single zombie film in our nine, in our twelve selected movies. There, not a single zombie offering. I'm disappointed. No. And it is a film from the seventies, seventy nine. Yeah. As is uh, Alien from seventy nine. We didn't mention that either. Yeah, I'll make I'll, I'll make an exception for Alien. Okay. <laughs> okay and carol i'm going with on saturday 24th uh at 20 past four which seems a bit early for some of the uh some of the stuff that's in it but anyway is it's not a colombo film it's not a colombo it? film no <laughs> on movie mix uh walk the line is showing and i don't see it on tv that often and I'd, I'd really recommend seeing it if you haven't watched it already okay well that is now it for this week's fail critics podcast thank you all for joining us on this journey through film next week Owen, we have got i believe spectre we do yeah so it's probably just going to be james bond stuff we talk about next week excellent uh the last one went down very well so i'm sure this one will as well yeah. um, it was weird that's just that skyfall episode we recorded because we did a bond special triple bill thing and then we did a skyfall podcast after it and the skyfall one considering back then in october 2012 I think we had episodes that used to get, like, at most, we were lucky if an episode reached 100 downloads. And then we released the Skyfall episode, and that had 1,000 downloads. It was just unbelievably popular for some reason. People like Bond. I can't imagine that Crimson Peak's going to have quite the same (laughs) this week's episode. Yeah. I think Uh, at the same time, in October 2012, we had our lowest ever downloaded episode, which was uh, Paranorman. (laughs) <laughs> in the space of the week of each other anyway yes uh, uh, Phil quickly before we go where can people find Wikishuffle uh, wikishuffle.co.uk or you can follow us on Twitter at wikishufflepod okay um, and yes you can find our website at all the usual places where, where articles going up all the time and we'll be back next week <laughs> The Failed Critics Podcast is presented by Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, created by James Diamond, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, remixed by James Yule of JamesYule.com. You can find us at FailedCritics.com, on Twitter at FailedCritics, and Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash FailedCritics. Thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 